9-11. This is a, this is a great story. Working Fans Podcast. Cool. Yep. All right, here we go. Coming down. Three, two. And at the Working Fans Podcast, this is just a podcast that three lifelong fans created to have a place to talk comedy and pro wrestling. Now, our comedy podcast releases every Tuesday, while our wrestling podcast releases every Thursday. We release bonus episodes under the moniker Working Fans Presents every now and then. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, any major podcast provider. The important thing is just please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen to us. Now, we have started a new thing. We are now on Amazon and Audible. So those episodes release every Monday. And that's kind of going through the archives and just releasing our old episodes in a new area. So if you want to live through the process with us again, take that journey with us again you can find us over on Amazon and Audible. If you can't get enough of us in the audio form, check out our YouTube. It's youtube.com slash C slash Working Fans Wrestling Pod or just search Working Fans Podcast on YouTube. We have the whole archive is up there. And if you listen to the Working Fans Podcast, you are more than familiar with the 531. That is our signature segment where we take your top five list on a particular subject, vote it down to a top three, and then debate it down to a top one. If you want to hear three guys talk shit about comedy, wrestling, life, anything, you will enjoy the Working Fans Podcast. Find us on Twitter. That's at Fans Working. Facebook, Working Fans Pod. We've got email where you can reach out to us and please contact us to let us know what you think of the podcast and for any ideas that you might have. That's workingfanswrestlingpod at gmail.com. We're on Instagram where you can keep up with us at workingfanswrestling underscore pod and we can continue to do what we love and bring you guys in as fans. We want to take a minute to thank our newest sponsor on the show, 482 Designs. That is F-O-U-R, the numbers 82designs, 482designs. You can find them on Facebook by looking up F-O-U-R, 82designs, at F-O-U-R, 82designs on Instagram. And if you want to email them, go to F-O-U-R, 82designs at gmail.com. Pretty soon, we're going to be rolling out some high-quality T-shirts and stickers that were just done by the sponsor. Please check them out for any of your screen printing needs. First off, it's light years better than our first one. Also, like, divide the washer and dryer. They look good, and they're good quality. Nice. And those stickers before Paco chewed them up were amazing. And luckily, we'll be getting some more in, hopefully, before we start selling them to fans. But that's F-O-U-R-8-2 Designs. All right, everybody. It's the Working Fans Podcast with the man they call Dave. And today we have a special guest on, a guy who's been an associate producer on films like The Wrestler. And he's also involved in a documentary night called 350 Days. And got a lot of other stuff going on, too. We'll talk to him today about Evan Ginsberg. Evan, thank you for doing the show, sir. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No problem, man. First, I'll just start off wrestling. You, we were talking a little bit off air. You, you've met a lot of great friends. And, like, what got you into wrestling? And what, where did, like, your wrestling fandom all start? I was 12 years old. It was 1972, so I'm giving away my age. <laughs> and it was a rainy day, and I'm bored out of my mind. I'm a kid. And I start, some of your viewers won't even know what this is. I start going on the UHF dial. Okay. The UHF dial. Okay. Yeah. And I hit the uh, Spanish language stations, which is where the wrestling was hidden back then. It was almost like a secret. And this big monstrous guy is pounding on this Indian. And I don't even know what I'm watching. And, and, and then they say it's Chief J Strongbow. And, you know, so this, he's getting pounded. And all of a sudden he does like this herky-jerky war dance. And I'm a kid. And like my mouth is open. And he, he chops the guy. He pins the guy. 
And the guy's like twice his size. And I'm like, wow, what is this? And my mom goes, it's wrestling. And my mom, when she was a kid, would, would go with her dad to see Killer Kowalski, Buddy Rogers, mm -hmm. Antonina Rocca, you know. So it's almost in my blood because her father loved it. She loved it. Now I discovered it. And not long after, my dad takes me to Madison Square Garden. The main event is Nikolai Volkov mm -hmm. and Freddie Blassie against Bruno and Strongbow. And I walk into the garden that night, and this, this is going to sound strange. I say to myself, wow, this, this is in color, because our TV <laughs> was in black and white. That's how long ago this was. Hey. And, and it, it, was, it was like Marvel superheroes and villains come to life, you know, the Valiant Brothers and Killer Kowalski and Haystacks Calhoun. I mean, they, they were larger than life, especially for a kid. A total mark. I mean, you know, I thought it was real. And I mean, it was just amazing. And the next month at the Garden, we started going every month. The maniac Tolis, John Tolis. Oh. He's almost like forgotten to history because there's not a lot of footage of him. He was huge in L.A. And they erased all the TV tapings to save money. They erased uh. the video tapes every week. So not everybody knows Tolis, but he was one of the greatest heels of all time. And he had called Bruno Sammartino a spaghetti bender. This was, <laughs> this was like hot stuff back in 1974, okay? And Bruno wanted revenge because he insulted his heritage. And, yeah, John Tolis headlining the garden. And then they had the Valiants against Bruno and Strongbow. And <laughs> Valiants were ahead of that time. Albano and the Valiants would come out, and they would do stream of consciousness promos. It was, it was like performance art. They were just like riff off of yeah. each like jazz musicians. And, you know, and, and my mother was amazed later because, you know, as a kid, she saw Kowalski as this evil guy. And one day these guys became my friends. They became my friends. And it's a, it's, it's a long story getting to that point. But, you know, it, I mean, I've, I've had some incredible experiences being involved with professional wrestling. That's really cool. I, actually, just on a personal note too, growing up, my mom would always mention Antonio Roca. So I yeah, always heard yeah. a little before my, I was born in 76, so a few years later, but I remember like she always talked about going, she grew up in Puerto Rico. So she always talked about Argentina Roca and it was such a big deal. So it's funny. And John Tolis, it was funny because I just remember him, I had to do my research on him, but I remember him as the coach with Mr. Perfect years oh, later. Yeah. Quick, yeah, I had no what idea. A, what a fiasco that was. You have one of the greatest talkers of all time, and Vince puts a whistle in his mouth and tells him not to talk. I mean, it's, it's utter stupidity how they wasted him. You'd enjoy him more on, of all people, Herb Abrams' UWF, because at least he could talk there. You know? I, yeah, I, that, that's and I saw this all that later. And it's funny, yeah, you're right, because you wouldn't think to look there, because a lot of crazy stuff happened. But yeah, there was a few gems once in a while so well that's awesome man now you're obviously you're big into wrestling but now you ended up being an associate producer like on these films and stuff years later how did this all come together like being an associate producer and what it, and tell people do what does an associate producer do sure sure what i've learned in life is one thing always leads to another and it's it, a lot of times it's just purely by accident being in the right place at the right time so Back in the 90s, I put out a uh, sheet, you know, an early newsletter, and one of my readers was was Fred Giobold, who was a radio host in New York on WBAI-FM, and he invited me to be part of his radio show because he loved wrestling. He grew up in the Midwest on the Crusher, the Bruiser, Vern Gagne, you know, all of these guys, and he just loved wrestling, and he loved my newsletter. He says, come do radio. So from the radio, we started inviting various wrestlers on the show. Uh, so one night, we're talking to Sherry Martell, three in the morning. And <laughs> she, said, she says to us, I've been on the road the past 15 years. I didn't see my kid grow up. You know, really, like speaking from the heart. I was on this show. We did the show one night. We had Eddie Guerrero on. 
and he's sobbing hmm. because they found Art Barr, his his tapping uh. like like right before that. So we were doing a tribute to Art Barr, and Eddie Guerrero's just sobbing. And later they carried him out of hmm. a hotel room, young also, you know. So one New Year's Eve, we're, we're interviewing Luthez, you know. So so it was just like these magical all-time legends that we had in studio or on the phone. And we made these contacts. And later, I became an agent. And I would book various wrestlers for autograph appearances. So I'm sitting at a wrestling store in Queens. Jack Sabbath is the owner. Uh, you know, Wrestling Universe, it's called. So anyway, I'm sitting there with Johnny Valiant and Nikolai Volkov. Who, who had been my friends, you know, at that point. And the executive producer of The Wrestler, that's the money guy, the guy mm -hmm. who raises the money, his best friend turns up and says, you guys would be perfect for this project we're working on. We're doing this movie called The Wrestler. And so we meet with Aronofsky, the screenwriter, the executive producer, and we just hit it off because Nikolai was like the warmest, friendliest guy you'd ever want to meet. Johnny was like the funniest human being on the planet. He actually did stand up. We took his stand up show all across. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember that now. Yeah. We, just, we just hit it off. You know, we're downing beers and laughing, and Johnny and Nikolai are regaling them. And, you know, next thing I know, they contact me and they say, We'd like you to be the associate producer, which means you're the wrestling guy. Uh. And not wrestling people. So um, I did five or six casting calls where I brought in about 125 different wrestlers. So I brought in Ron Killings, Romeo Roselli, Necro Butcher. This is a great story. <laughs> so so we had, Necro Butcher is supposed to meet with uh, Aronofsky. Maranovsky's a very down-to-earth guy. I mean, he's a genius, but his mom's a school teacher. You know, very, you know, just a nice guy. So, so Necro Butch is running late, really late. I mean, an hour and a half, an hour 45. So, so Aronofsky's like, Evan, see if you can reach him. You know, I'm tired. It's been a long day. You know, where is he? So I call up the contact number. It's Necro Butch's mom. Okay, <laughs> and now she's worried. Where's my boy? You know, <laughs> yeah. Like here's a guy who's who, like staples dollar bills to his head and mule right. lights himself. She's worried about her boy Dylan. His name is Dylan. Okay, so Aronofsky finally he's like two hours late. He's still not there. Aronofsky leaves. Who walks in? Necro Butcher. So now I'm frantically calling Aronofsky. He comes back from this. He comes back from the subway or whatnot, <laughs> and they hit it off. They, Necro Butch is a really sweet guy. You know the image of him like covered in blood and doing crazy. He's the not nice, soft-spoken guy. So they hit it off, and you know the rest is history. And so basically, you know, I provided them with whatever they needed: the announces, the wrestlers, the ring, Mickey stunt double, you know, etc. So on. I, so the, the, the answer to your question, the associate producer works for the executive producer and basically gets them whatever, you know, they ask for. And so it was, it was, it was an incredible experience. One day I'm on set just watching and it's that depressing autograph scene mm. and Aronofsky gets this smirk and he goes, Evan, come here. And I'm like, okay, what? So he, he says to me, work the room. Walk up to Mickey last, ask him for an autograph and a Polaroid. So I'm like, okay. So so Mickey whispers in my ear, he goes, just improv it. Just he thinks I'm an actor. I'm not I never acted in my life. So I do exactly what they tell me to do. Mm -hmm. And I walk up to Mickey and I you know, I go, I'm thinking, like, what do I say? Because it's all in we're improving it. All right. So, so I go, I loved you as a kid. I saw you in Madison Square Garden. Can I have your autograph? And he, he looks at me and he goes, what's your name? So, so now I'm thinking. And I just go, Evan. So how surreal this is. I'm playing myself in a fictional movie. 
how utterly surreal this is. Yeah. And Johnny Valiant was one of the wrestlers in that scene. He was the guy with his head down on the table. And he says to me, he says, you know, your hand was shaking. And I said to him, I said, there's like 125 people on these giant cameras in my face. I'm not an actor. You know, I believe you that my, my hand was shaking. So, so jump ahead, jump ahead, uh, you know, a year or so. And where the feature film at the prestigious New York Film Festival, Lincoln Center, sold out 2,300 seats, 40 bucks a ticket. And I'm sitting there with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And she looks at the screen. She looks at me. She looks at the screen. She goes, that's you. And I didn't know, I didn't know if I was on the cutting floor or what. How surreal this all was. And I tell people that to this day, we got a standing ovation, and people mm. were they, people were crying. That scene where he says, "I'm just a broken down piece of meat," mm. you know, to his daughter. I tell people that that's like Marlon Brando and on the waterfront. I could have been a contender. I said that's going to be an iconic line, an iconic moment in film, because that's as great a performance as you'll ever see, Mickey Rourke and the wrestler. And I'm not saying because I was part of it. I mean, he was tremendous. And, you know, it was just a magical evening and a great experience. And uh, I'm honored, you know, that 100 years from now, people will show that film. And there yeah. I'll be. And there I'll be. We'll, we'll all be long gone. But that film's going to last, not because it's the greatest film of all time, because his performance is as great as anything I've ever seen. And a spontaneous thing, too. It just happened to he asked you right there that day. To yeah, yeah. Get it, was, um, it was like the stars aligned, and a friend of mine who's a movie buff, he said to me, that was Aronofsky's gift to you. You know, that that's that's like a little moment, you know, that'll last forever. Yeah. Now, it's funny because uh, obviously you've met a lot of wrestlers, so I can always ask people, like, hey, what are your wrestlers? But, and I don't know if you had a lot of experience with these people, but I've Probably not going to get a chance to ask this question. So, did you get to have any interactions with Mickey Rourke or Marissa Torme? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. We, we uh, worked off and on on that movie for seven years, okay, and yeah. the actual filming was seven five-day weeks. So, we, this is a funny story. We went that. We, what we were doing prior to the film was research. So every weekend, I was taking. Mickey and Darren and, and, you know, the whole crew to wrestling shows, conventions, anything wrestling related from the lowest level indie with 40 people to Ring of Honor, you know. So one day I take them to CZW's Cage of Death. Oh, geez. Okay? <laughs> oh, man. So, so we go backstage and it's like a mash unit. They're sewing these guys up. They're, they're stitching, they're stitching them, they're covered in blood. It was insane. It was utterly insane. So I said to Mickey, am I allowed to curse on your show? Oh, yeah, do whatever you want. So I said to Mickey, I said, what did you think? And he goes, it was fucking great. <laughs> He's a tough guy, you know? So, yeah, that was, that was one memory. I, Mickey couldn't be any nicer, more gracious. I never saw him say no to a fan an autograph, a, you know, a picture, you know, the guy's just very down to earth. And the thing is, he's an actor, you know, he's not, he's not a, a just, just a celeb. This guy's a method actor. This guy's the real deal. You know? Yeah. Now that's, that's funny you say that too. I, I had this thing. I was curious. To think, I, I think some of the greatest like personas and wrestlers, a lot of them are the greatest method actors in a lot of ways. If you think about like, the guys who just live that character, like Macho Man Randy Savage, or, you know, like they're always Ric Flair, I guess would be a great example, right? He's living that gimmick. And well, Johnny Valiant was actually an actor. He he was on The Sopranos and yes. you know, various, various roles over the years. And he used to say to me, the wrestlers are larger than life. They have more charisma. He's, he used to say, Al Pacino could walk down the street, you put on a baseball cap and a pair of sunglasses, nobody notices him. You know, Hulk Hogan walks down the street, everybody's going to notice him. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, so he, Johnny had a lot of respect for the wrestlers as far as, you know, they were well rounded performers. I mean, I'm not saying they're all Mickey Rourke level actors, but right. 
but you know that there's certainly um, tremendous, tremendous, well-rounded performers, and I, I've had experiences in wrestling. I was backstage once, and the original Sheik walks in, mm. and he was no kid at the time, and people got scared mm. because he just had this aura about him. <laughs> you know, it's mm. like you know, it, it was it was interesting to see it, and when he came out. The fans who were like the smartest fans in the world, you know, these were hardcore fans. They were like flinching back when he came <laughs> at them, you know, because he was so convincing in that role. And, you know, in his prime, Abdullah the Butcher, the same thing. You know, the guy put on like this lunatic, like glint in his eye. And, and you know, he actually frightened the fans. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard stories, too, about the Sheik from someone – I don't remember who I was talking to, but they were saying that he would sometimes back in the day, I guess, go to restaurants and just start acting crazy just to like <laughs> live the gimmick and scare people. That, that, that I don't know, but yeah. the two or three times I actually met him, I mean, you know, if you, if you talk to him like a human being, he was perfectly nice, you know, but he was, it, it, it's an experience meeting some of the legends because like a guy like Terry Funk, I mean, mm. guy's larger than life, larger than life. I mean, you know, the charisma is off the charts. You know, these guys, you have, to, you have to understand something. There's been thousands upon thousands of wrestlers. Not everybody's a main event legend. And they almost cheapen the word legend because every veteran is now a legend. No, a guy like Ch Terry Funk is a legend. This guy sold out arenas around the world, okay, and had some of the greatest matches in history. And, you know, if you could talk, 20,000 people into a building, you have some kind of magic charisma because not everybody can do that. Yeah, Terry's definitely one of the all time greats. It's a great example. Uh, my money, too. Flair Funk 89 is also one of my favorite. I, I, was there, I was there for the I quit match in Baltimore. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. yeah. it That's was one awesome. of the greatest things I've ever seen. I, I saw Terry Funk wrestle Sabu twice, it was unbelievable. Why? Unbelievable. You know, unbelievable. And Terry and his age. He was yeah, already yeah, he was yeah. no kid then. Terry Funk and Cactus Jack. I mean, you know, some of the live matches I saw him in were, were just incredible. And that that was, you know, past his physical prime, you know. I I, I wasn't seeing him as the NWA champ back, you know, in the early seventies or whatnot, but he was great. Great now. You were talking a little bit off air too, like you mentioned Nikolai Volkov. You've met a few people you would say are really close friends. Tell me some of like your better friends that you've met in this business and you know, real real friendships, not just acquaintances. Yeah. Nikolai was very close to me. He knew my mom and he called me from the hospital and he said they cleared my lungs out. I'm feeling much better. I'm going home tomorrow. And a few days later he was dead and mm. they found him dead at home. And he was only 71. We, we, we used to say Nikolai's going to live to 100. We would do autograph appearances. And he would wake up. He would room with me because he's like, the chic party's too hot. Evan, we're going to go to bed early. And, you know, so, so he would wake up 6 in the morning. And he had these old school blocks, you know, that he carved in the old country. And he's doing 300 push-ups the minute oh. he wakes up in the morning. So here's a funny story. <laughs> One day we wake up in this hotel and he's like, Evan, let's arm wrestle. Let's arm wrestle. And I'm like, I know this isn't going to end well. So, <laughs> so I'm arm wrestling with him. I'm 6'2", 220. I'm not a 98-pound weakling. I couldn't move this man one inch, not one uh. inch. He used to crush fruit with his bare hands on TV, and the and the apples would explode, and they weren't gimmicked. That's how powerful this guy was, and just a beautiful person. And when my mother died, he called me, you know, and told me how sad, you know, to send his condolences, and just a beautiful person. And it's not just me saying it. Bret Hart, when Nikolai died, said publicly, "Quote." Quote, Nikolai Volkov was the nicest wrestler I ever met mm. in this business. Wow. Imagine the thousands of wrestlers Bret Hart met over the yeah. years. So, you know, that's really high praise. And Johnny Valiant, 
is a close was a close friend. It's still hard to wrap your head around these guys have gone. Jimmy Valiant, uh, is, you know, Jimmy Valiant has more charisma than the entire Raw dressing room. Trust me, <laughs> trust me. Yeah. Jimmy Valiant, great, great guy. Tons of it, tons of indie wrestlers. I always try to support indie wrestling. I'm not one of these guys. There's been no good wrestling since the territories. That's nonsense. Mm-hmm. New Japan is great. Yeah. yeah, support the indies. What did you think now? This is a little off topic, but like for me, it was different watching wrestling like with completely no fans because I was telling somebody I watched UFC with no fans and I realized the difference was I was so interested in MMA because of the outcome, whereas pro wrestling, I was like, oh, I'm not into the outcome as much anymore. I'm into the actual production and the show and not everybody's able to hold your interest as well with no fans. Some guys can talk good. Yeah. I thought it was horrible with the, without the fans. Horrible. Yeah. I could ba- I could barely watch it during the whole COVID <laughs> year. You know, I was watching, mm. you know, heel Roddy Piper matches, and mm. I started watching New Japan because the fans came back earlier than in the United States. Yeah. Without the fans, it's very antiseptic, and that 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 beehive horrendous Thunderdome. Oh my god! <laughs> it's just like a total distraction. Yeah. You know, I'm like, look at that goof in the middle. And you know, I, I, I just I just couldn't get into it. No, nah, I don't blame you. Now, obviously, you have another project, 350 Days. You got a lot of great people on this. Superstar Billy Graham, Bret Hart, to name some few. How did you get involved with this? And tell us some stories about 350 Days. Well, this is a funny story. After The Wrestler was, was such a success, I mean... Mickey won the uh, Golden Globe and, you know, nominated for the Academy Award. And it was a critical and commercial success. I mean, it wasn't the Avengers <laughs> commercially, but, you know, it did well. I was getting all kinds of offers for wrestling projects. And I just kept saying no because I'm like, nothing's going to top the wrestler. You're just not going to top it. So... Another Darren, Darren mm. Antola, the executive producer of Three and Fifty Days, says to me, "Why don't we just meet and talk and get to know each other?" And um, we sit down at this diner, and he's an old school fan, you know, younger than me, but a big '80s fan. He loved Morocco and Snuka and Piper and you know all of those guys. That was also a great era. And we're talking, and he's a blue collar guy. And he, and, and, but he's a street smart, tough guy also. He, he's a boxing cut man and trainer. He's worked with Kendall Holt and Yuri Foreman, like world champions on HBO and Showtime, wow. you know, title matches. So he wasn't just some obsessive fan, you know. I just liked and respected him. And he's like, Evan, we're, we're going to do a really good film. And the title, 350 Days, refers to some of the wrestlers, like, for example, the NWA World Champions, they literally wrestled 350 Mm -hmm. days. They were never home. So Bret Hart tells us he wrestled 330 days. Greg Valentine said to me personally, I wrestled 320 days in the mid-'80s. So the, the film is about what's it like to live this insane sex, drugs, rock and roll, never being home, never being there. Think about it. Starcade was Christmas back in the day. Mm -hmm. The Viva series was Thanksgiving. You tell your family, I'm not going to be home for Christmas or Thanksgiving, okay? I'm not going to be home for your graduation. I'm not going to be home for the birth of my child. I have a big match somewhere. And the effect this has on your marriage, your two or three ex-marriages, your your children, your relationships, you're an absentee dad. The other side of it, Wendy Richter's in the movie, yeah. says, how could I have children? What was I supposed to do? Put put the baby on the, on the ring apron? Uh, you know, I was on the road every night. So I kept saying to Darren, I said, quote, I said, make a movie that a non-wrestling fan would appreciate. 
make a movie that would make some 80-year-old woman who never watched wrestling cry. I said, that's the movie to make. There's 5,000 shoot interviews. The world doesn't need another shoot interview. Make a heartfelt movie. And that's what we did. That's what we did. And much like The Wrestler, I, I, I always tell people this. The Wrestler and Rocky for boxing, if you really break it down, there's only 13, 14, 15, 16 minutes of wrestling or boxing in those movies. Mm. It's about the characters, the relationships, you know, the human, you know, feelings. You know, and that's why box, that's why Rocky was huge. That's why the wrestler hit. And I said, let's do the same with 350 days. You don't need another film with the fanboys, you know, uh, you know, then with, with all the memorabilia, it's been done a thousand times. Mm -hmm. I said, do something that's really going to, uh, you know, hit people. And we got worldwide distribution. You could see it pretty much on any cable system, Hulu, Amazon Prime. It's not on Netflix for whatever reason, but it's pretty much everywhere else. And it's not hard. Tubi, you can watch it for Tubi. free. Tubi. Yeah, that's how I saw it. Yeah, I watched it a couple okay. times. You know, you hit something there. I don't know why it just hit me when you're talking, but like almost like pro wrestling. Okay, so Rocky and you said the wrestler is only a little bit of wrestling and a little bit of boxing in it. It's all about just like in wrestling, the storyline and the character, right? Like that's where the main heart of any good story is anyway and it's so funny how like art just imitates real life right that's just like the most important thing it's i mean there's been there's been uh, unlimited boxing movies and yeah you know you could count the great ones on maybe two hands and True. you know if rocky balboa eventually dies on screen mm -hmm. you know, you're gonna cry because to you that's that's a person you Absolutely. know yeah Absolutely. and you know i say this all the time about wrestling today I'm not a big fan of Raw or SmackDown. Why? I don't care. I have right. there's no there's no emotional investment. I haven't cared about WWE since Daniel Bryan was like climbing to the top. He was a little guy. He was 190 pounds. He was the underdog, and you got caught up in the whole thing. And mm -hmm. um, it was real. It felt real because yeah. it was partially real. He's beating. Right. He's beating these guys who are bigger names, bigger bodies, bigger everything, bigger reputations. And um, now I knew, let's see, I told you I brought in Ring of Honor to uh, the wrestler movie. I was watching Brian Danielson wrestle Nigel McGuinness. Mm. And I tell people that was the Dory Funk Jack Briscoe. That was the Ricky Steamboat Ric Flair of that decade, you know. 07, 08, whatever it was, you know, that was, um, those were amazing matches. So I, I knew how great, you know, Daniel Bryan was, but the average person, you know, he was like this little underdog and, you know, he blew everybody away in WWE. Yeah. Yeah. And so those things you can see too, like if you watched it long enough, you could see he wasn't their guy. There were times when you could see they were trying to pull him back or put him in other well, that, time, that time, that time, Sheamus beat him at WrestleMania in like thirty seconds. I wanted to put a gun to my head. <laughs> That's yeah. what launched him somewhat too, though. The fans rallied. I think that was what's so great. It was so organic. The fans just got behind it. Like, no, we're not going to let you bury this guy. I don't remember. Yeah, that's the last time I remember where I just saw such an outpouring of genuine fans, like in WWE, where they were like, "No, this is our guy." And uh, yeah, no, he's great. I mean, he he deserved it. You know, he wasn't, oh, he's the biggest guy. He's the muscle guy. He's got the 24 jump. He was the best guy. That yeah. he, he, you know, back in the, see, I grew up in a different era. Back in the day, you would get a guy like Dory Funk Jr. who looked like any guy walking down the street. But, but this guy could turn you into a pretzel. You know, Jack Briscoe looked like any guy walking down the street. They, they would actually pick the best wrestlers. So mm -hmm. that. Daniel Bryan was actually a throwback to that. That's interesting. Uh, Bryan, this is just a selfish thing. Bret Hart was one of my favorite wrestlers growing up. Loved Bret Hart. He got me back. Like I never got completely out of it, but I was almost out of wrestling. Like The Hogan era kind of got stale to me. Like I grew up as a kid loving that, but then it's like, ah, I kind of like what goes on in the ring, bell to bell at that point in my life. And Bret brought that back full circle for me. So what was it like working with Bret Hart 
on 350 days? I did not do the actual okay. interview because okay. um, that was done in Canada by our Canadian team. But, but besides that, the guy couldn't be any more gracious. He, he promoted the film. He endorsed the film. He embraced it. And, you know, I kind of cringe. You know, the, the fans have their good list and bad list. And for some of them, he's on their bad list. And I'm like, this guy did nothing but kill himself every night of the week, you know, giving 110% in the ring, having great matches. This is, this is not the guy, you know, to be critical of. And same with Cena. You know, some of the fans hate Cena, but I'll tell you, I saw Cena headline the garden. He put over Bray Wyatt clean in the middle of the ring. Great match. I saw Cena headline the garden. He put he put over Roman Reigns clean in the middle of the ring. Okay? So the, the, the myth that, you know, he didn't put anybody over, he was selfish. Here's a guy, here's a guy that did thousands of visits to dying children. Can you imagine the toll that would take on somebody? Yeah, I don't uh, know. I don't know if I could do that. No. Yeah, I produced I produced the movie with Wounded Warriors, and it's called Teresa Sario Alive Again. It's a documentary, and we went to hospitals, and I was meeting kids, kids in their twenties who had been overseas. Three three limbs blown off. Ugh. Okay, roadside mines. Okay, and you know, I experienced some of these hospital visits and it, emotionally it was tough. One soldier got blown up by a roadside mine and his entire body was on fire. He was burnt, I forget this, mm. the number, 70% of his body. It was some, he was burnt over his, he had a hole in his head. There was an actual hole in his head and he was blinded and, and, and he lost his leg. I mean, so basically went from the strong young guy to a patient. Yeah. He was in the hospital for two years and he's in this documentary and it was inspirational meeting him. He overcame it. He went back to civilization, you know, but my, my point is visits like that to a hospital are really heart-wrenching and painful and you're holding back tears and the, the parents, the girlfriends, the wives become caretakers. So for John Cena to visit thousands of dying, dying kids to be mm. on so many fans, oh, I hate him. He was pushed too heavy in WWE. Well, maybe you cross the line into obsessive. If yeah. you hate, hate a wrestler who you've never met. I mean, come on. <laughs> a thousand percent, man. I say that all the time. Like, it's always it's a weird, weird business with the fans and the relationship because, like, yeah, like somebody asked me something one time about a wrestler. And I wouldn't even say, but like, are you a fan? I'm like, well, I'm not really a fan of his character. That This isn't Cena, but he got a little stale for me, but like, I don't know him as a person. Could be the greatest guy. I've never met him. And people yeah. forget that. Like, we haven't, you haven't maybe met these people sometimes. And you're I like, mean, I didn't hate him. Yeah, save, I won't even use the word hate, save your loathing for mm -hmm. promoters who mm -hmm. don't give these guys pensions, 401ks, health plans, you know, yeah. who discard them when their bodies are broken. I mean, if anybody deserves loathing, it, it's, it's, it's wealthy promoters who discard these guys. And, um, you know, so I'll see, I'll see. I hate Roman Reigns. I hate John Cena. I hate this guy. I hate that guy. I love Vince. I'm like, dude, you got it. You got it backwards. <laughs> Roman Reigns survived cancer twice. That's mm. the guy you should be pulling for. Come on. Now I was just curious to get your opinion on this, and uh, then I'm going to ask you about a few more things you got going on. But the older I get, what I think I've noticed too is how. You know, everybody, oh, wrestling's fake, wrestling's fake. And I always say it's predetermined, you know, it goes on in the ring. And they talk about that in the documentary, too, a little bit. But it's also funny to me, like, I realize, like, how much other forms of not just entertainment, like uh, Conor McGregor, for example, right, MMA borrows from pro wrestling, uh, politicians borrow from pro wrestling. Oh, yeah. And isn't it just amazing? The only, like, if you watch, like, 
people like you know I won't talk politics, but like you know someone will say something about you know Donald Trump did this, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a that's a wrestling, that's a promo, that's a soundbite. Yeah, you, know, yeah, yeah, you recognize yeah. things, and it's like, yeah. yeah, people don't get that. But if you're a wrestling fan and you start paying attention, you pick up like there's a lot of people that are borrowing from pro wrestling. Well, sound bites are basically uh, like wrestling catchphrases, political sound bites. You know, they're not worried about, you know, 30 minute speech. They're worried about that 30 second sound bite that's going to be played a thousand times. It's like a, a wrestler's catch, catchphrase that, you know, that the fans connect with. And I, um, I, wrestlers do not like the word fake. And I'll tell you why. They'll say to me, Evan, I'm always in pain, always, every day, okay? Because gravity isn't fake. You throw a 300-pound guy in the air, you know, thousands of times, you know, and they're landing on their back. How many wrestlers have had hip replacements, oh, yeah. shoulder replacements, knee replacements? It breaks my heart when I'm at a convention, and I still work conventions. I'll, I'll be at that Legends of Hamburg July 24th. When I see the Iron Sheik in a wheelchair, who mm. Banner was mm. in a wheelchair, Abdul Little Butch is in a wheelchair, Holly Race was in a wheelchair. Who was greater than Holly Race? Yeah. Okay. So to say it was fake, okay, it was predetermined. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not exactly a secret. Vince said it publicly. Right. It's not exactly a secret. But to use the word fake, I've had wrestlers go so far as to say, my three divorces weren't fake. <laughs> my, my son not talking to me because I was never there isn't fake. And they, 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 they bristle at that word. And I have nothing but respect for wrestlers who have sacrificed, sacrificed for the fans. And what you're also going to find as the, as the science evolves, is a lot of the old school guys are coming down with Alzheimer's because back in the day, they would take chair shots every night. Chair shots to the head. It's not healthy getting hit in the head mm -hmm. with a metal chair. No. You know, I, I understand they know how to do it in, search, in such a way you know, where they're not cracking your skull open, but it's st there's still impact. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's a rough business and it takes its toll. And just, again, as science evolves, not having normal sleep patterns, always being on airplanes, horrible diet. You know, back in the day, they went smoke-filled arenas, smoke-filled arenas, thousands of people smoking, you know, and they're breathing that in. Besides the obvious, you know, steroids, growth hormones, potting hard. I mean, you know, that's a different story, but it's not a business for longevity. You know, you don't you don't see a lot of ninety plus year old wrestlers. It's the right. exception. It's the exception to the rule. You know. Absolutely. Now, uh, Evan, you've been great. Is there uh, any other projects you got coming up? Yes, very excited. I have a book called called Wrestling Rings, Blackboards, and Movie Sets, and that's basically been my life. I've been an educator. I've been a film producer and I've been involved with professional wrestling. So I tell a hundred stories in chronological order about my life and the amazing, amazing people I've met and worked with. And a lot of the pieces are almost eulogies. Killer Kowalski, Johnny Valiant, Nikolai, Nicole Bass was a dear friend of mine. Wonderful person. Melissa Coates just died. She was at my wedding. She mm. was at my wedding. Great person. And I have pieces on many of these wrestlers, but you know, also making the movie The Wrestler. A lot of these stories have never been told. They've never been told. We were having trouble raising the money for The Wrestler. We wanted $18 million, which is nothing to make a movie today. And they only gave us six. They only gave us six which is like the food budget for the Avengers. Right, right. No, it's nothing. So at one point, Aronofsky takes me to meet with Nicolas Cage. He's considering, you know, a bigger name. Nicolas Cage was a big, big star back 2007, 2008, okay? So where do we meet him? 
at the garage of the Manhattan Center at a Ring of Honor show. <laughs> so, so part of me is like marking out because he's one of the biggest movie stars in the world at that time. And then a strange thing happens. I glance down at his shoes and I go, they're just a normal pair of shoes like I would wear. You know, it's not a, it's not a thousand dollar pair of shoes. And I'm like, hey, he's just another guy, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, he puts one leg on and one pant leg on in the morning, then the other. And, and he was, so, again, so nice, so gracious, so friendly. So, so Aronofsky's like, Evan, get him into the building without the paparazzi. <laughs> big deal at the time. And so I tell, you know, the, the Ring of Honor crew, you know, bring in, bring in Nicholas Cage. Just like, get us in the elevator real quick, you know. So they, they, they whisk us backstage, and he's, like, watching from the curtain. <laughs> and he's like, is this real, like UFC? He didn't even know what he was watching. Uh, okay. <laughs> but uh, a super nice guy. That's one of the stories I tell. And I was also at the um, Andy Kaufman, Jerry Lawler, David Letterman taping. I was in the audience. Oh. And, I, and I tell the story of that from a fan's perspective because there was stuff going on before, during, and after, during the commercials. And that's really been untold also, the details of that. And et cetera, so on. And that's cool. there's several, several chapters, several stories on the making of the wrestler that I think fans will find interesting. And again, I'm very proud of the wrestler, very proud of 350 days. I, I just won't put my name on anything that I don't think is quality, that I don't think is from the heart. We do a little podcast that's called Wrestling and Everything Coast to Coast. The same thing. You know, I don't I don't care if a thousand people listen, I don't care if ten people listen. I just wanna do something from the heart. Last week we did a full hour plus tribute to Melissa Coates. And it meant something to me because she, she was a close friend. So I have a, I'll tell you a, a quick story. <laughs> the after party of my wedding, this was 2010, Melissa Coates, it was, it was at this little nightclub in Greenwich Village, a few blocks from Electric Ladyland Studio. And if you, if you, if you know what that is, that was Jimi Hendrix's studio where guys like Hendrix and Dylan and you know everybody all the, the biggest names in the history of music would come in and record. So we're we're like two, three blocks from there at this little nightclub and all my musician friends are jamming and the place is packed and it's just a, a, we're having a blast. Melissa Coates walks in <laughs> and she's got like a mink coat, hair like flowing down to her ass. You know, she takes off the coat, like rippling muscles. And like, it's like a Fellini movie. Like, like it's, it, it was like everything stopped and everybody's looking at her, you know? Everybody's looking at her because nobody looked like this. Mm. She, for those who don't know, you know, I'm assuming they know who this is. She was a world champion bodybuilder before she became a professional. She was on all the covers of all the uh, leading, you know, muscle magazines. And um, she won major, major championships. So yeah, it's kind of it's kind of ironic that at age fifty, somebody who you know devoted their life to their body is no longer here. You know? Yeah, it, it's it's tragic. And the same with Nicole Bass. I was I was at her deathbed. Mm. I was literally at her deathbed. And you know, I tell these stories, and they're all short and sweet. They're all you know, two, three, four pages, and but it's from the heart. And and there were times I was writing these stories, and that you know, it's also you know my mother passing, my father passing. I'm 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 writing some of these stories, and I'm crying so hard I can't mm. see the screen. You know, so yeah. th this is so if if you're looking for a wrestling book, you know about ribs and who was the booker in Chattanooga mm -hmm. in 1972. This isn't the book. This this <laughs> is, you know, what was Johnny Valiant like? <laughs> you know. Right. 9-11. This is a this is a great story. 9-11-2003. I'm working a convention with Johnny. And we're on this little 20-seater plane. 
about to take off, and, and it's 9 11. Oh, and it's still fresh in your mind. It was only two years earlier. We look at the pilot. He looks like every bad guy in every <laughs> Chuck Norris movie. The guy, <laughs> the guy looks like a terrorist. He looked rough. This he looked like Lee Van Cleef, if you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, okay? bad, ugly. Yep, yep. So, so I'm looking at Johnny. Johnny's looking at me. We're looking at the pilot. We're like, is this thing going down? <laughs> so, so, and these little, and these little twenty seaters, you feel every bump. You know the turbulence because it's a light little plane. <laughs> so we hit some turbulence, and I'm like, I'm like Johnny, this is it. The guy's taking us down. <laughs> you know? so, so obviously that didn't happen, but you know, just some great, great experiences with these guys being on the road. And it's not your typical wrestling book. It's not a bombardment of dates and results and yeah. data. It's it's who are these people? And you know, I we had we had a convention once. I walked out of my apartment, and standing in front of my apartment is Lou Albano, Jimmy Valiant, Johnny Valiant. I'm like, it's like it's like the WWE Hall of Fame, like yeah, you know, waiting outside for us to work a convention. You know, just great experiences with these guys. I'm sitting at Chiller, Chiller Convention in Jersey with Albano. We had done a, a panel. I emceed the panel with the Valiants and Albano. And Albano's got the rubber bands in his face. At the time, he's, you know, he's a big boy. And he's laughing at all the guys in the Star Wars and, you know, all, and all the get-ups. And he doesn't realize, you know, he doesn't look like every nine-to-fiver either. Right, you know, right. Hawaiian shirt and the rubber bands in his face. And, <laughs> and I'll tell you, over the years, and a lot, of, a lot of these stories are in the book. We worked the Hollywood Collectors show. A bunch of us, and we're on the uh, shuttle bus going back to the airport. And this woman gets on the bus, you know, uh, you know layman, uh, nine to fiver. She looks at Nikolai and she goes, "You're Nikolai Volkov." And he was he was the sweetest guy. Yes, yes, nice to meet you. What's your name? What's your name? And they start talking, and Nikolai goes, "Let me introduce you to my partner, the Sheik," and. Mm -hmm. The sheik looked exhausted. He's like half asleep. Hmm. And the woman, the woman says, that's not the sheik. And he like flips out. You jabroni, get, get away from me. on the bus, you know? <laughs> so um, just crazy experiences, great experiences, tragic, also tragic experiences. But real. But real, yeah, real. Yeah. And, Again, these guys were just larger than life, and many of them are still here, luckily. Jimmy Valiant just wrestled at age 79. Jesus. He just wrestled. Oh, my God. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, these are some tough guys, boy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. great charisma, Jimmy Valiant, too. Definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, you're too, young. you're too young to have seen the Valiants live. No. They were ahead of their time. No. The, Valiants, the Valiants headlined the garden, you know, three or four times headline, uh, you know, for a tag team, that's very unusual. You know, Piper and Orton did that 10 years later, but that, that was very unusual, you know, for a tag team to be that over. Yeah. Now, when, uh, again, what is the name of this book and when do you think it might be out? Wrestling rings, blackboards and movie sets. The um, production guy says it should be out in August, but you know, it could be September, whatever. Right. But it, it'll be out pretty soon and, you know, I'm excited Sorry. about it because um, when all is said and done, I, I wrote it to honor all these people. I was, I was, you know, you mentioned before, this just popped in my head, about wrestling being, quote, fake. I met Kowalski, and he was unbelievable. I mean, he retired, you know, in 78. You were two years old, so you didn't see Kowalski live, but he was unbelievable. Top five or ten heel of all time. Easy. Easy, okay. Forget the WWE list. I mean, this is <laughs> the legit list, okay. <laughs> so um, Kowalski, I meet him for the first time. Huge, massive guy, and he's struggling to get off the couch because the arthritis is so bad. Struggling, and it really, it really saddened me, you know, because. 
he was fierce, fierce. Mm. So, you know, again, the toll, the toll that this business took on a lot of these guys, um, you know, uh, Ivan Koloff, when he was older, also top 10 heel of all time, as great as anybody, he was hunched over, hunched yeah. over. Like, like, like his back was practically broken, you know, uh, almost like an L shape, you know, and if you saw Bruno wrestle Ivan Koloff in, in the 70s, I mean, the guy was magnificent. So, you know, it, it's it's a brutal business. It's a beautiful business. It's taken me to places I never would have gone otherwise, you know, these conventions mm. and wrestling events and movie premieres. I mean, but I have a love-hate relationship with it because mm. when you see a GoFundMe, for a Paul Orndorff, someone as great as that, someone as great as that, why didn't these promoters take care of these guys? Come on. Right. Come right, on. Right. These guys generated millions for these promoters, and they're not millionaires. No. And for the fans who do the, for the fans who do the, you know, they, they all pissed it away on wine, women, and song. That's bullshit. Utter bullshit. Because... A lot of these guys never broke a hundred grand. Oh. Never broke a hundred grand. Okay, headlining arenas around the world. Yes, better money came in the mid '80s. But let's say, for example, somebody handed a Greg Valentine or a Tito Santana or a couple thousand dollars to headline Madison Square Garden or the Boston Gardens. What did Elton John or Mick Jagger get, or, or Paul McCartney headlining that same building? Come on, yeah. come on. Yeah. You know, these guys were never paid what they were worth. Never. Yeah, it's pretty wild when you think about it. Yeah. Well, is there anything else social media-wise you want to tell people where to find you or anything? I'm not hard to find. I'm on Facebook, uh, all, the, all the top social media. I do a page. Uh, Evan Ginsberg's old school wrestling memories. You can find that on Facebook. You'd enjoy it. Yeah, I'm really not hard to find. And I just want to thank you for this forum. You you, you do a good show, and you know, I I did I did radio for 16 years on a 50,000 watt station, and my radio mentor taught me. He said, Fred Giebel, He taught me, it's 80 percent the guest, 20 percent the host. And you realize that. You realize that. You let oh, somebody yeah. talk. A lot a lot of these guys don't realize that because they were weaned on Howard Stern and guys who made it 80% about the host. So, you know, you, you do a good show. You know, respect. Seriously. Appreciate that. Man. Thank I mean, you very I, much. I sincerely mean it. Yeah. Uh, I know. I really do appreciate it, too. That's very nice. Yeah, you know, I'm just, I'll just say this because, uh, uh, again, it is about you. But uh, me personally, just you answer that. Uh, just a fan. You know, I really love this stuff. I love listening to your stories. And yeah, man, well, I hope we do this again down the road. This is really oh, cool. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And anytime, anytime. It's 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 fun reminiscing, you know. I'll, I'll tell you, I tell people, I'll make it quick because I know you're trying to wrap up. That's all right. I tell, I tell people some of the best nights of my life was seeing Heel Roddy Piper headline the garden, seeing Ric Flair. The best match I ever saw, I've been going since 74, almost 50 years. Best match I ever saw was Flair and Steamboat. It was, mm. it was art. It was wrestling elevated to art. Midnight Express against Rock and Roll Express. Wrestling elevated to art. Okay? Brian Danielson and uh, Nigel McGuinness. I'll, I'll say it again. So it, it's not all from 30, 40 years ago. I mean, I didn't see it live, but Okada and Kenny Omega, how great was that? You know, several times. I mean, you know, wrestling, when done right, is an art. It's an art. And it's, to be, it's to be respected. Thousand percent. All right, Evan, thank you so much for doing this show. It's been a pleasure. Man. Anytime. Man. All right, so that wraps us up for this week. Thank you again for listening to the Working Fans Podcast. So as always, you can find us on Twitter at Fans Working. Our Facebook page is Working Fans Wrestling Pod. We have email where you can reach out to us and let us know what you think also. That's WorkingFansWrestlingPod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, WorkingFansWrestling underscore pod. And then as always, please 
continue to listen to us on Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, all your major platforms. If you're following us on Apple Podcasts, which we are also on now, and YouTube, please make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It helps us bring you these podcasts where we get to talk to you and talk with you every week. 